Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. In this week's episode, I'll be speaking to Nick Akins and Elizabeth Robles about their book, The Places Here. Published in 2019 by Sternberg Press, their book brings together a collection of artworks, essays, and conversations that offer a range of perspectives on black art in Thatcherite Britain. Born from a series of exhibitions, the book includes contributions from the likes of Sonia Boyce, Evan Fakoya, and Deborah Cherry and features the work of artists such as Black Audio Film Collective, Eddie Chambers, Mona Hatoum, and Isaac Julian. Nick Akins is a curator at the Van Arbor Museum in the Netherlands, and has edited various works, including The Long 80s, Hito Sterel, Too Much World, and Toward a Lexicon of Usership. And Elizabeth Robles is a researcher and teacher in the Department of Art History at the University of Bristol. In the following discussion, I asked them about various practices that developed throughout this period and how they inform current discussions about art theory and the politics of race. It would be really helpful for listeners who are familiar with the book or aren't familiar with the book to kind of bring them into the kind of constellation of exhibitions that went on around this project and then also to kind of talk about the decision and the process of turning those exhibitions into a book. Sure. So thanks for inviting us, Sam, to speak about uh, the places here. Originally, the research began within the context of a larger exhibition that happened in the Van Abbe Museum. The research began in 2014. It was within the context of the European Museum Confederation Internationale, of which the Van Abbe Museum, where I work, is a, is a partner. It comprises, at the time, five European museums. And we were all looking from our different contexts um, at the 1980s. The 1980s as a moment across different parts of Europe where relationships between government and society, states and public went through quite a a fundamental change in how they understood one another. And what I and colleagues did at the Van Abbe Museum is we were looking at how different organizations were researching the 1980s, looking at different contexts from the transition in Spain, from the last decade of former Yugoslavia. Um, And we thought about bringing these different contexts together in a single exhibition. And then I was thinking, okay, how do I want to approach the uh, 1980s and how might I want to speak about the context in the UK? And so when I was thinking about the UK and the 1980s, one immediately thinks of the figure of Margaret Thatcher. And when I started, really right at the beginning, started thinking about Thatcher, I read Stuart Hall's essay where he introduces the term Thatcherism. I think in 78, I want to say, he he writes this essay where he talks about Thatcherism. Um, And from Stuart Hall's essay on Thatcherism, I started kind of looking at the different discourses, the different art practices, uh, the different conversations, I guess, that was happening between artists, intellectuals, filmmakers, organizations that kind of comprised what has 
become to be known as not unproblematically as the black arts movement um, and realized that that might be that was a, a really exciting way to speak to this moment in 1980s Britain and a moment uh, and a set of practices that was woefully underrepresented then and and uh, remains now so this was the kind of context of that first ex first exhibition uh, in the Van Abbe Museum and then from that a Sam Thorne, who was the incoming director of uh, Nottingham Contemporary, he came to see this exhibition um, and he in, invited me or kind of proposed to develop the project into a standalone exhibition at Nottingham. And so that, of course, drastically changed the nature of the project from something that was part of a, a kind of constellation of contexts and practices across Europe um, to a much larger uh, scale exhibition that was happening, um, you know, taking place in in Nottingham, which was such a key site for the a number of the artists and figures in the 1980s. And then it had another different iterations in in Mima and the South London Gallery. And I guess it's important to say at the beginning that this exhibitions or these series of exhibitions were never conceived as a, a series. There was never this kind of grand plan to do this rolling series of four exhibitions, but it kind of evolved, expanded and contracted and um, had these different versions at different times. And that was a, a, as, as, a, as a kind of curator and a researcher that afforded an amazing possibility to expand the research, to revisit different ways of framing, different constellations of artists and projects. Um, and I suppose to kind of emphasize this very shifting, fluid nature of that uh, moment in the 1980s, but also how we might understand it now. Perhaps now, Lizzie, you could kind of come in and talk about the process of turning that into a book. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it was actually really exciting for me because I got to, so I'm a researcher, an art historian here at the University of Bristol, and I specialize in the 1980s and in sort of aftershocks into the 90s and thinking about ideas around the way that the politics of race and art collide in a British context in the 20th century. And so it was actually really exciting because I came to the project totally as an outsider. So I obviously sort of had my eye on things and I'd gone to see the exhibition, you know, at, as an art historian uh, several times with, with different colleagues and friends. And so when Nick got in touch to me, sort of quite out of the blue, I sort of got an email saying, hey, I'm going to be. I think you were passing through Bristol. We met in Temple Meads train station for a cup of coffee to come on board um, to sort of help out with producing the book and sort of turning this amazing exhibition project into something that isn't a catalog, but also isn't sort of an academic book. It's sort of its own its own thing in, in some senses. So that was really exciting. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoyed about that was became very evident even in our first meeting was that I think what made the exhibition so successful and what I personally liked about working on the book and, and revisiting the book also as, as, a, as a reader is the ways in which Nick's exhibition project really brings out this idea of connectivity, sort of co-production, sort of working together and sort of dialogue, I think it was was the, the major theme for me at least, sort of, sort of this idea of dialogue, the dialogue that we have as viewers with 
artworks, the dialogue, really interesting and important dialogues that were going on during the 80s between artists and, and all the different activities that they undertook alongside their art practice. And then the dialogues that we have now as, you know, from my own perspective as a researcher, from Nick's perspective as a researcher and a curator, but also sort of artists' perspectives now in the dialogues that we have in the present um, with the past. Yeah, so I think those were, those were sort of the big things when we had our meeting that Nick put on the table, a little, you know, sort of the, 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 this is sort of the core of what we're, we're trying to build on, I think. Yeah, and so it was it was really fun. So then I got to sort of hop on board and think about and, and work together with Nick about how you translate the scale of those projects. Because I I, I have it here and I think I've probably to, to protect my myself have forgot how many exactly how many images are in the book, but it's loads and loads of archival material. Yeah, and so this idea of how do we translate the scale of this dialogue and the scope of this dialogue into something that is sort of digestible for everybody. And I think that was the other thing I loved about working on this is that as an academic, you know, I can produce academic texts, but I think at the forefront was always this idea that this dialogue needed to move beyond of our small group of, of researchers. Yeah, that kind of leads on to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is obviously part of kind of the job of the editor or the curator or the researcher or historian is to try and think of uh, various kind of organising principles to collect together material. And, and obviously there's a few at play in this book and obviously one of the key ones is black. And you kind of touched on it slightly there, Nick. How do the artists that you're looking at reckon with that term? Because obviously in some ways it's a very insufficient term. You know, you're talking about a huge variety of cultures and geographies and histories. How did you both as editors and uh, curators reckon with the complexities that come with taking on that term? And also maybe how did, how did the various artists unsettle or take on or kind of reckon with that um, term? Yeah, so in the, in the exhibitions that happened in the UK, they came under the title The Places Here, which is borrowed from a work by Lubaina Himid, We Will Be... And we had many discussions, Sam, Thorne and I, um, about if, how to, I guess, reference blackness, black art within the subtitle. And in the end, we just went with this line from Lubaina's work, The Place is Here. I think, you know, this question of the question of uh, blackness, black art was contested in the first black art convention in the early 80s. It remains contested now. Different artists um, will take vastly different opinions on it. Within the exhibition project, within the book, I guess uh, we've allowed that, what I think is this very kind of productively unresolved nature of the different arguments around black and blackness and black art um, to remain precisely that, to remain unresolved. Because to try and pin them down in any sense would be to yeah to deny this very um, important productive contestation that was taking place so within the book itself for example you'll see authors use black art you'll have small b you'll have capital b and that's a choice that we took as as editors to allow different contributors to use the terminology that they felt spoke to their political position and to the practice that they were referencing 
so yeah, I don't know, Lizzie, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think for me, again, it goes back to this idea of dialogue. And I think one of, you know, this is something that I think texts and projects that deal with the idea of race and artists who are racialized as other than white are sort of, you know, it's a sort of a constant question that I think we have to be really self-conscious and aware of. And I really like, again, this idea of dialogue so that hopefully what the book communicates is a sort of openness and you can trace some of that dialogue around what black means to different people in different places at different times in the, in the conversations themselves. So for example, one chapter of the, of the book that I use in my teaching actually, so I know it quite well at the minute, is a conversation that includes some contemporary artists from including Abhinav Koya and Raju Raj and, and Raisa Kabir, talking with Claudette Johnson. And they sort of interrogate the idea of political blackness and sort of go, well, you know, it, in some ways it doesn't really make sense anymore. And what was it like when it did make sense? And Claudette sort of goes, well, you know, again, it's always been contested. And I think just seeing the way that that plays out with artists who are still wrestling with the, these things, I think, yeah, hopefully pushes things forward again, just by not locking things down and saying, this is what this is and saying, well, this can only be formed together as a part of a, of a dialogue. Yeah. And then another one of the terms that you're reckoning here with is kind of British identity, which, you know, in a way, in a kind of popular cultural sense, we're all kind of reckoning with, or people are being forced to reckon with you know, what British history actually is and what the kind of fantasy of Britishness is kind of built on. And also the kind of fantasy of kind of nationalism that is really addressed head on in a lot of the works that are in the book. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk to that and how the kind of artists you're looking at, how do they reckon with the kind of nationalism, the kind of identity of Britishness? And, and uh, I think they're quite essential in understanding how, the, how those kind of identity marks are manufactured or kind of identified with. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about the various ways that that appears through the, the work as well. Well, I think obviously there's something important here about Britishness within the context of Europeanness that maybe was more a part of the exhibition program. But I think within the context of the works, you can see sort of looks to Britishness more broadly. And it, it's not, I think it's something that we need to think about within this wider context of the sort of collapse of the national and the rise of the sort of global art. And aren't we all global now? And that's great. But I think there's a tendency there then to erase the people which nationalism you sort of disclaimed. Do you know I mean, that right at this point where we're starting to go, oh, we're all global and we're all part of the global art market is around the time when, when these artists are sort of staking their claim in Britishness in really powerful works that deal very explicitly with the Union Jack and Margaret Thatcher as, as an icon. So thinking about Lubaina Hamid's a fashion marriage, you know, that are ex dealing explicitly with the iconography of Britishness to contest its narrowness, essentially, or contest versions of it which are very narrow and rooted in, in white supremacy, goes back to you know, empire colonialism and all that. Um, yes, yeah, so I, think, I think it's really important to, to foreground that. Yeah, I think it's just always amazing when you look to the different ways in which this was being addressed through the works themselves. Huh? So, you know, one of the in three in three uh 
iterations of the show, you had Lubaina Himid's uh, Toussaint Louverture, which opened the exhibition, where you had this kind of coming together of uh, the history of the Haitian um, Revolution at the end of the 18th century, um, uh, kind of in dialogue with contemporary Britain in the 80s. Um, you had figures like Chaila Kumari Berman, which would uh, bring together uh, histories of Asian histories in relation to contemporary Britain or Sutaba Biswas. Or, so you've always got this, um, uh, the qu question of Britishness being troubled from different historical contexts. Of course, when I started, when I started researching this, project in 2014 you know this was before the brexit vote this question of um, uh, britishness and um, what it meant to be british within the european context was a, a very different stage to what it is now um, so i think if you look through the works themselves and you look at how the kind of meaning of these works have changed from then to now. There's this really shifting, fluid relationship with um, ideas of, of, of British national identity. What I'm trying to get at is we're seeing a kind of continuum of British colonialism, imperialism, and the kind of identities that go with that. And they're kind of being mutated and morphed, you know, into a very dangerous political project, which travelled through the guise of the National Front. And I don't know if you saw it on uh, Twitter. It was a little while ago now, but it was a National Front poster from the 80s. And it was, and it read like a Conservative Party manifesto, you know, reject the common market, scrap foreign aid, um, stop immigration. And, you know, there's this very harrowing sense when you look at these works that, you know, that continuum has kind of taken over. So I guess what I'm really asking you to talk about is in these people's work and the kind of confrontation with this project of uh, British nationalism um, you know is there anything we can kind of glean about how those fantasies are constructed or or how the kind of fantasy of kind of British supremacy has kind of warped and been made use of as a floating signifier that kind of attached to all these different projects maybe I've just overcomplicated the question even more but I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to tease out in the essay I write in the book I point to Stuart Hall's writing in the late 70s and early 80s and Stuart Hall understanding um, the kind of strength of Thatcherism or its power and the power of the right to put forward a political project that is seen as breaking the mould. And I talk about the fact that, you know, the power of this argument of the right of nationalism to be seen as as mold breakers is you know the magnified and propelled so much in what we're seeing in different parts of the world now you know what we saw what was it last week unfolding in in washington and so absolutely i think what you know what what stuart hall was articulating in the late 70s and early 80s we are seeing you know that that the roots of today's forms of of right wing populism of um, anti establishmentness was was being laid then now i think what's really important when what the exhibition project and the book tried to do um, i don't know how successfully but was to understand the very specific conjuncture of that 1980s moment of these artists um, speaking to that moment um, but to always try and do that through the lens of 
the work that they were producing through that practice. And so I, I think, you know, what you see in, in pieces like um, Eddie Chambers' Destruction of the National Front, and you see in Sonia Boyce's work, uh, you see in Chyla's work, is the kind of, I suppose, the formal strategies that they were taking up to try and articulate or come to terms with this um, with this conjuncture of the 1980s. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that goes some ways to answering your question, but absolutely yes, the, the roots of today's right-wing populism are there, but how artists, I think it's very important to look at the formal, like aesthetic uh, strategies to think about how artists were somehow negotiating that conjuncture as well. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting there is the way in which if you look at the art, you can see so many of these strategies playing out in really powerful ways to really trouble this relationship or, or the binary, I suppose, between art and politics. Thinking about, you know, what does it, what does Britishness mean? What does it mean to claim Britishness? What does it mean to, to sort of subvert Britishness across these works playing, you know, for example, with art history, with British art history in, in different ways, you know, often through sort of making reference to art historical works or making reference to strategies of collection. So thinking about works like Eddie Chambers Civilization, so the collecting of the British Museum. Yeah, to, to like next to sort of trouble Britishness, but in sort of new and I think much more complex ways than I think, than ways that it, than that was given credence at the time, because if you go back and what I loved about this exhibition so much and what I quite like, and I really love about the book as an academic is being able to look at this archival material that was collected and displayed alongside the work to understand the ways in which those sorts of acts of subversion were received and understood at the time and the ways in which they're received and understood now. So, you know, so reflecting on, I think it's the, in the black art group display, you have the sort of guest book of um, one of their exhibitions from the 80s, one of the, um, presumably it was one of the, what were they called, Pan-African artists, what is it, young Pan-African artists, something like that. And in the guest book, you know, there was, so there were some really interesting sort of appreciative comments and then some comments going, you know, that this is propaganda, this is, we don't want politics in, in our museum and things like that. And I think, again, that there's this real resonance with what's going on now in terms of the parameters, I suppose, of how we interrogate these binaries of British and non-British. And, and Yeah, just on the back of that as well, I want to ask you about the relationship between uh, the artists and institutions. In the book, you kind of talk about... Um, there's obviously a kind of troubled relationship between a lot of these people making work and kind of the you know establishment institutions and many of them kind of turned to kind of collectivized practices that maybe offered them a more expanded definition of what their practice encompassed and I was wondering if you could talk about those different forms of practice and what the relationship was between uh, these groups and museums at the time and then if possible kind of how that relationship sits now because obviously with the kind of inclusion comes another set of things that these artists have to kind of negotiate i suppose yeah i mean deborah cherry talks about it in her contribution that artists these artists in the 80s were artists but they were curators they were organizers they were writers they were critics the number of 
shows that were self-organized uh, because that's what needed to be done. Uh, there was um, um, the uh, institutions were, um, yeah, wanting found uh, found uh, wanting in 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 many respects, um, and so Lubaina uh, curating these um, three shows: uh, Thin Black Line, Five Black Women, uh, Black Women Time Now in the mid eighties. Uh, that was out of necessity. Uh, it wasn't because she was positioning herself as a curator. She was organizing these shows uh, because that's the only way that they would take place. And that if it meant putting a show on in the corridor on the side of the ICA because there was no way else to do it, then that's what she would do. And Marlene then becoming, uh, Marlene Smith then becoming the director of the Black Art Gallery. You know, so these kind of lines between artist um, and curator and critic, Eddie Chambers setting up um, uh, his archival project, this was yeah it was it was out of a um, uh, an institutional lack or an institutional exclusion uh, and i think you know lizzie talks about it beautifully in her essay as well in terms of thinking about how we 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 need to look at this um history from these multiple multiple perspectives of um, personal relationships, whether relationships between the artists, the organizers, these are all completely inflected in different ways. Um, so it's a very, these things happen out of a necessity and they happen through a set of personal relationships that, that um, we need to kind of think about when we're, uh, when we're historicizing the work as well. And then the second part of your, yeah, maybe Lizzie, I don't know if you want to chip into that. Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of it. I would have said this idea of institutional neglect and marginalization and again i think the resonances to today are, are are interesting i mean i don't know the number but i know that there was not an insignificant amount of collecting off the back of this show isn't that the case yeah i don't know the number but um wonderful if there was <laughs> yeah i mean probably but yeah having sort of looked through a lot of collections recently it seems like the dates of acquisition seem to line up. I don't know. I think I think Nick has sort of covered it. You know, this idea of the institutions uh, neglecting the work. There was definitely in the eighties. There was, of course, it was very inconsistent. Right? You had like uh, at the Arts Council, uh, for example, the Arts Council collection made amazing acquisitions in the eighties. This was because. They invited um, black artists, artists of color, onto their acquisition committee. So you had Gavin Yanchis, who's a really important figure. He was he was the one who was pushing a lot of the acquisitions for the Arts Council collection in the 80s. Sonia Boyce, for example, Eddie Chambers' work. So you did have these pockets. And then, of course, you had this... Um, Influx, you know, you had these series of um, reports and agendas and initiatives um, which suddenly called attention to this gaping sets of uh, exclusions, institutional exclusions. And then, you know, I'm, I'm making very broad generalizations or summaries, but the kind of culmination of this was was the founding of, of Innova in, um, uh, you know, in 93. That brings a whole other set of questions, you know, figures like Rashid Arain were highly critical of the whole Innova project. He thought, you know, he talks about it creating a smokescreen uh, for other institutions to carry on their the kind of practices of neglect and exclusion. So it's not like when this 
when there's money, when there's attention towards the exclusions and the gaps come come about, that creates a whole another set of debates, which I think, are, you know, which which are ongoing. Yeah, no, and I think you're right. I mean, that makes me think of the of the work that the Black Partisan Modernisms Group did. So looking at, okay, so all this work was, you know, some work was collected. We know that. How is it dealt with? How is it interpreted? How is it displayed? How is it displayed? How does that measure up to um, white contemporaries? And again, this is something that that's still causing lots of the source of lots of discontent and debate now, right? You know, this idea that there are still really oh, what was it? The massive exhibition that Rashid was left out of very recently. Well, not very mm, recently. British conceptual art. Yes. And you just, ow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is, and I think those are the things that there was, I think there was an awareness during the 80s that this was happening and, and that this was happening at that time, right? Because there's an awareness of what had happened before and what mm. had happened to Frank Bowling and Aubrey Williams. Yeah, so it's interesting and to see it playing out all over again. Bar World is a kind of global project it's very international in a certain sense, but then I'm kind of thinking um, after you've referenced Gavin's work there about the apartheid in South Africa and, and the kind of international networks of organisation and kind of cultural production in a way that feels quite like distinctly different from the, the way in which the art world is global now. And I was wondering if you could talk about the sort of methods or the strategies by which people did kind of organise themselves uh, internationally. I mean, I guess there was kind of conferences and exhibitions where people would kind of come together, but uh, and maybe it kind of touches on kind of Paul Gilroy's kind of idea of the kind of Black Atlantic, where there was a kind of exchange that built on the kind of geographies of slavery. Um, how does that manifest in the work, the kind of internationalist attitude, do you think? I think, you know, thinking to that moment within this sort of milieu, thinking about the debates that were ongoing around the role that, Pan-Africanism might play or should play or could play within 1980s Britain. So you have some parts, and I think this is something that I find really interesting is the ways in which this is so unsettled at the time. So during the 80s, you have some proponents, especially early on, who are very invested in, in sort of ideas of Pan-Africanism, especially read through the lens of the American Black Arts Movement. You know, and I think you can see that brought to bear quite a bit in, for example, early works by Eddie Chambers. But then you also have the sense of sort of third worldist politics that Rashid was certainly a champion of mm. at that time, if, if not too much later. Yes, yeah, so I think there there is that sense of of the international playing out and playing with, on the one hand, ideas of Britishness. But thinking about the ways in which Britishness is complicated, because Britishness is, is in global, isn't it, because of colonialism and all of these things. And so the response is is global, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think also if you, you look to like within the area of film and video practices, like what Giovanni was doing, so like the Third Eye Film Festival, which happened in 1983, like, this was hugely important for video practices, Sankofa, Black Audio, for um, introducing them to international filmmakers and practitioners um, from all over the world. So I think there were there were there were certain initiatives which, yeah, introduced 
artists to this kind of yeah international transnational let's say practices transnational emancipatory practices but i think what you say sam is really also pertinent in thinking about the different ways transnationalism solidarity happened then and happens now within the you know within the much more market driven art system that we're working in i've started looking at this uh, amazing project called art against apartheid or art contre apartheid which was began by this french artist ernest uh, pignon ernest in the uh, 70s and resulted in this uh, touring exhibition with around 140 130 works from you know really household figures like Liechtenstein and Rauschenberg to people like Gavin uh, Yanchis or Fredo Lamb. Um, and this was an exhibition, a project that ran from the mid-70s to the mid-90s until the works were eventually um, went to Cape Town. And you t- to think about that kind of uh, scale of ambition and longevity and kind of political integrity <laughs> happening amongst artists and institutions in over 40 different countries, I think. To think about that happening now, you know, when what you get is a lot of institutions putting up a, a black square on their websites, it's cast today's art world politics in a, in a very different light. Yeah, that was actually my final question. But I would be interested to know actually about the state of this, a lot, a lot of the kind of archival material and the artworks that you included and, or, and whether or not the kind of situation of those, as you kind of pointed to though, the kind of collecting of that work has changed over like the last year since uh, the kind of flourishing of various kind of black activisms globally and the kind of problematics of the, what happens when something like that becomes a commodity? I don't, have you kind of noticed changes in the way that material's coveted or treated in, in any way? I don't know about that. I, don't, I stay well out of the, the art market. I do know that I've had lots of lovely feedback from researchers and other people who are interested in this work who are really excited to see a lot of these works in print for the first time in color. And I know as a researcher, I know Nick will be too modest to, to, to sort of shout this from the rooftops, but this was the first time some of this work had been exhibited in, in decades. And what I find really gratifying is, is the ways in which, because the work was displayed and because there's now some, you know, a, a good image that you can work to that I think we are starting to see a lot more writing about, about it. And I think that, that that's, yeah, in no small part down to the sort of ambition and the, again, the scope and the scale of Nick's exhibition. Thanks, Lizzie. <laughs> I mean, I think there's definitely, there's definitely really like encouraging signs. Like I know, for example, Chyla Kamari Bermans, who's got this amazing commission up at Take Britain at the moment, like her archive is going to Tate. I think they're in the process of uh, putting that together. There, as, as Lizzie kind of pointed to, I think there's been a number of uh, acquisitions, definitely commissions and exhibition projects that have happened since the places here, which, you know, the places here came out of a, or was part of a, a series of exhibitions, research projects. Lizzie talked about one really important one, Black Artists and Modernism, um, but uh, different, yeah, different exhibitions and research projects that 
point to different artists, institutions recognizing the significance of this work in the 80s. And that's a kind of ongoing, ongoing thing. But there are still, you know, there's still, for example, I don't know what's happening with June Giovanni's archive that's crying out for institutional support and resources because it's an extraordinary thing that needs to be safeguarded in terms of understanding um, uh, the history of black British film or, or uh, film uh, writ large in the, in the 80s and 90s. In some cases, you see really encouraging signs of institutions taking on the work and doing the work and putting the resources in, but there's a huge way to, huge way to go. And I'm thinking about the archives, obviously, as though we can't visit them now. One of the things I loved about this and, and working on this was seeing how much of this stuff is still kept in people's lofts. <laughs> yeah. Which was really um, illuminating because, again, you know, sort of as an art historian, you think, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is prime stuff. And you're sort of getting an email from... Marlene or Smith or, or Keith Piper going, oh, yeah, I think I've got that in a box. Yeah. Give me a few days and I'll rifle through my, you know, in my loft. You think, well, crikey, <laughs> just don't lose it. Yeah, yeah. So, no, yeah, that, that was really, really interesting. And seeing the different, it's just, it's lovely. And seeing the, diff, the ways in which, I suppose, you know, thinking about the ways in which these artists have been sort of, received or sort of written into or accumulated. Some of them have been collected more often than others. Some of these archives are held by illustrious and, and big institutions, you know, so uh, several quite nice afternoons at, at the library at, at Chelsea, for example. They've got a lovely archive there, uh, Chelsea College of Art. Yeah, but then the ways in which other artists that, that Nick invited to join the exhibition uh, people like Mabel Peters, and again, these other sort of archival materials that are that are literally in somebody's loft, I think really shed light to me on the ways in which there's so much work still to be done, both within the research, so research, but also writing in to history and institutions. One of the things we wanted to do with the with the book was to have this kind of cross-generational exchange which Lizzie kind of pointed to in, in the in the panel discussion she was referencing. And I think that, you know, speaking to uh, artists working today, speaking from my own experience, having done an art history degree in the early 2000s, just like the striking omission for these artists and archives from not only art history courses or art curriculum, but the fact that, you know, many of these things just aren't appearing in, in certain archives and collections. And that inconsistency that Lizzie is pointing to is something that hopefully was being slowly addressed and, and worked through. Um, but I think it's really, really clear in this kind of intergenerational conversation that hopefully plays out in the, in the book. One of the reasons for the exclusions or the omissions or understanding how this project speaks to artists today is precisely because um, they're not present in the archives and the collections or they haven't been to date. So I think there's a very interesting relationship between how the institutional archival and collecting work um, unfolds or hasn't unfolded at different levels and then how artists approach this work or the relationship they forge with it today. Right.
if it's okay with you two, I think that would be a nice place to leave it. That's okay. Cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you both for taking the time out to chat to me today. That's it's, cool. uh, it's been really nice. <laughs> and um, it's a fantastic book. <laughs> Only sorry that I couldn't have spoken to you about it a bit sooner, to be honest. <laughs> right. Plug that we won a prize, didn't we, Nick? We did. Oh, did <laughs> you? A prize. I'm so what, excited. What, I never win prizes. What was the prize? What was the prize? <laughs> we won the Historians for British Art Publication Award. Oh, fantastic. From multi yeah. <laughs> You put that yeah. right in the headline. That'll be the title. <laughs> An interview with the winners of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks again. Right. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the MIT Press podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you enjoyed the conversation. And thank you to Samantha Doyle, who edits and mixes the podcast and Kristen Galano, who produced the soundtrack.